Slate Spoiler Specials are brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with the first Slate Spoiler Special of the year 2013. We're talking about Les Miserables, the new Tom Hooper production of the grand global smash musical. And uh, joining me in the Slate studio is David Hagland. Hey, David. Hi, Dana. You are the editor of the Browbeat Culture Blog on Slate. That's right. And you are, let's get some of your background on Les Miserables. You're a long-term fan of the show? I'm not a fanatic, but I did see it when I was nine years old on its first U.S. tour, and I loved it and have just always had a fondness for it for that reason. Whenever I hear the songs, find myself humming them again, which certainly happened again. Did you have the soundtrack? I don't think I ever... Well, no, yeah, I'm sure I had a cassette version of it when I was a kid. It probably belonged to my sister. I went to see it with her. Um, you know, it was it was sort of a, um, a, a very adult outing for Did a you see it in Boston or on Broadway? I saw it in Boston at the Schubert Theater, yeah, 1987. I wonder if it's possible that you and Julia overlap. We were just talking to Julia Turner on the on the Culture Gab Fest about her childhood tween love. And in fact, wasn't there a post on, on Browbeat about the, the tween appeal of this musical? Yeah, so first Rachel Maddox wrote a piece for Slate that was about um, why children, and especially kids in, the, in that age, that sort of 10 to 12 range, love Les Mis. And then I wrote a post on Browbeat about why I think boys in particular might enjoy it. She had sort of focused on the girl perspective. Oh, I didn't see your talk on the boy perspective. Okay, you got to thumbnail that So my argument about boys in Les Mis, uh, and it didn't occur to me until I saw this movie, is that Jean Valjean is a superhero. Um, I mean, he he actually has several distinct traits that remind me of Spider-Man and Batman. He has a secret identity. He's uh, as strong as four men. That's how Victor Hugo puts it. Right. His strength is a big part of the narrative. Yeah, it's a big part. And in the movie in particular, I mean, you see him early on lift this giant uh, mast of a ship or whatever it is. And then he has this arch nemesis, Javert, who is basically a supervillain. I mean, he's, you know, this sort of pure, not exactly evil, but something like that who is obsessed with him and tracks him down over the course of his life and they keep running into each other. And then, and in fact, when Javert first realizes um, that Valjean has taken on the secret identity, it's revealed when Valjean is lifting a wagon off of some poor... Right, and it's only man. one man could have that strength. Yes, right? so exactly. I mean, it just has... It, it's like something out of Marvel Comics. And I think it made sense to me uh, as a nine-year-old in part for that reason. I think also it's drawn very broadly in terms of good and evil, and it all seems um, very grand. And I think, you know, for that reason, it just has this appeal, and it, it gets its hooks into you I do think it tends to stay there. Right. I wonder, though, if you have to be a tween for it to get its hooks into you. Do you know people who have been converted? And there have to be, right? Obviously, there are tons of adults who fell in love with the musical as well. But it is very big, grandiose emotions, right? You have to be... You have to be somewhat open to that level of melodramatic manipulation. Definitely. Both for the musical in general and, I think, for this movie. Uh, And whether it... I'm sure, like you said, I'm sure it has uh, fans who who came to it in adulthood. I do not know any of those people, personally. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was perfectly open to, to falling for this movie. I don't think the music... I think the music would probably have been an obstacle to me ever truly appreciating it. But do you agree with – I mean, I think that the the, the sort of major point to my review of this movie was that even if you don't like this musical, I think you can imagine it being framed cinematically in a better way than Tom Hooper does it in this movie. Yes, I think it would have been possible to make a movie that even people who don't love the musical could have enjoyed. I don't think they would have ever loved it because – you know, this musical is its songs. It's a, it's sung through. So if you don't 
get into the music, you're not going to love the movie. But you might have enjoyed it. And he just didn't make that movie. Uh, I, I, I don't see how anyone could not like the musical and then like this film. Right. Well, there's a very strange theory of performance, you almost might call it, that, that Tom Hooper brings to this movie. First of all, he wants to record all the singing live. But then secondly, he casts people who aren't necessarily singers, right? Some of right. whom have some singing experience. For example, Russell Crowe, who's been so mocked for his singing in this movie, sings. He, he's a front man for a band in Australia, right? He's got plenty of pop singing experience. But this is really sort of operatic level belting that he's being asked to do. So you've got non-professional singers singing in real time. And then the third choice that he makes, it's, it's a strange combination with those two elements, is extreme close-up, right? This this passionate love for the extreme low-angle close-up. So if your idea of a great performance is, you know, being jammed right up in a non-professional singer's face while they sing really difficult repertory, then you'll love Les Mis, but that's a, that's a, that's a tall order. Yeah, this is a hyperbolic, uh, melodramatic story and musical to begin with. And then Hooper just layers it, you know, uh, his own version of kind of over-the-top um, directing to make it this incredibly just – I mean, everybody that I've talked to about this movie says it's too much. And that, I mean, it is. That's the style. I think I liked that about it. There are plenty of things about this movie I didn't love. But too much, I mean, almost literally in terms of, you know, like the too many notes joke in Amadeus, it's like there's too many shots, right? I mean, there's so, it's so choppy, especially the big action sequences, the Paris Street Rebellion and things like that need to be filmed on sort of an epic and standing back scale. So they should look like a David painting, right? right. There are a couple compositions that clearly are supposed to look like David paintings or that kind of thing, right? When they're mounting the barricades. But there are so many big moments involving charging horses and, you know, city streets full of rebelling people. And we're seeing them in these tiny little chopped together close. Up. Sometimes close-ups to people we don't even know. Here's a random extra in the crowd. Let's get a you know a, cl- a close-up of them screaming in horror. I, to me, there was there was almost a it was almost avant-garde, unintentionally avant-garde in its choppiness. I mean, I suppose you could argue if you're a big fan, which I'm not in particular, of the of the very emotional close-up solo, right? It's a little bit American Idol style, right? Like how much feeling can you pack into one decontextualized performance? If you're a fan of that style, then you could say that the first third or so of the movie works because there are more intimate performances. But once we get into the historical scale of the second half of the movie or second two thirds of the movie, that style ceases to make any sense whatsoever. That's exactly right, because the first third is really about Jean Valjean. Uh, and Fantine, but these individual stories. So you have the whole uh, storyline with, you know, Jean Valjean stole a loaf of bread for his sister's family, was thrown in jail for five years, tried to escape, and so ended up spending, I think, 19 years in prison total. It opens with him leaving and then deciding to flee his identity. And um, then there's the uh, sort of interwoven plot with Fantine, who is uh, someone who works for Valjean in his, you know, his second life owning this factory but gets tossed out and becomes a prostitute. And each of these uh, plot twists are sung as everything is in this musical and there are these big emotional numbers focused on those uh, principal characters. And I think that the style works as you're focused on these few people. Once the movie takes a turn toward this rebellion of 1832 with all these student revolutionaries, it suddenly is on this uh, large historical scale it, it gets confusing. It's not clear who these people are, what's going on. Um, the, the line that jumped out at me was uh, at one point, one of the student revolutionaries says, were the last barricade left or something along those lines? Um, I didn't realize there were other barricades. I mean, we we'd never gotten any sense of the scope of this rebellion. Um, that whole sequence just felt sort of weirdly rushed and choppy, like you said. But whenever it can focus in on one person's story, 
I, I think that you know Hooper's uh, technique actually worked for me. So, for example, we've got to talk about the Anne Hathaway I Dreamed a Dream because that's kind of the showstopper. It's a weird showstopper because it happened so early in the show, right? And in a way, I sort of felt like, well, I can dust off my hands now. I've seen the emotional climax of Les Miserables, but it still had another, you know, almost two hours, maybe two and a half hours to go. But what did you think of that performance? I mean, I, I think people, it's sort of the crux of the movie, right? You have to be divided on whether you think she delivers that song or not. Yeah, I thought she was great. I mean, I, I like Anne Hathaway in general. I think that she conveys emotion through the song. So I think she's the best argument for Tom Hooper's style with this movie because she actually does convey real emotion through her singing. And she can actually sustain these intense close-ups, I think, because she does actually uh, use her face uh, brilliantly as an actress. And she can sing. Uh, she's maybe the only person in the movie for whom all of those things are true. Not Hugh Jackman, you don't think? I, Hugh Jackman's performance was a mixed bag for me. I really liked it in the first hour, but I don't think he um, did the older Valjean as well. I mean, it kind of gets back to the superhero thing, right? Hugh Jackman was, is Wolverine. Uh, so he's perfect as the young kind of strapping Valjean. Uh, but I didn't think he worked as well in the later parts. Oh, see, I actually thought one of the most powerful songs and one of the few that was able to, to penetrate the fog of not caring that, be, that cat, that's descended over me in the first hour of the movie was a late song. The one, I don't know what the song's called and is, to me was not hummable or memorable musically, but emotionally it was kind of powerful when he's consigning his daughter, when he's sort of saying, my daughter is grown up now, she can go be with this guy, right? Remember that song where he's saying, oh God, I don't even know. The this. late Valjean song I think of as Bring Him Home, but I, that... Does yeah, that... bring him home. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. So he's essentially saying, even though I don't want her to leave me, I want this guy to survive the rebellion so, so they can be together. And that was one of those moments where the essential emotion of Les Miserables, which I think is sort of like uh, glorious operatic self-sacrifice and martyrdom, right. um, was, was actually powerful. And when Anne Hathaway was doing it, all I could sense was there is Anne Hathaway performing martyrdom before me in extreme close-up. I was completely aware of it as a, as a created moment, which I think she technically mastered in some way. Even though I don't actually love the fact that she broke down crying at the end of the song. I mean, it's, it's, she's, she's truly conveying the emotion of the song. But it's something that I feel like a singer, a real operatic or even Broadway singer, would be able to bring that emotion without actually losing their vocal tone and beginning to cry. Interesting. See, I, I felt that um, gap more with Bring Him Home, maybe in part because um, Jackman is uh, further away vocally from uh, the standard musical version of, of that song. The definitive one is actually by this guy, Colm Wilkinson, who's in the movie. He plays the priest and he's you know thought of as the great Jean Valjean on stage. And Bring Him Home is... Um, is that who you saw in the touring company? Or you don't I, wonder, I haven't looked it up. I, I don't know that he actually toured with it at, off of Broadway. I do think he... Um, inaugurated the role in London and maybe also on Broadway. And I've listened to it more recently. And it, his version is is much higher uh, in pitch. I just think it has this incredible range. And so the song is a little softer. Um, also, I had sort of gotten lost at that point among, you know, uh, Marius and his friend. And the, somehow the just the emotion of the story had gotten too dispersed at that point in the movie, whereas my memory of seeing it as a nine-year-old was that I was totally, you know, enraptured by what was happening with these student revolutionaries. Right. 
What about Russell Crowe? Another controversial performance here that people seem to either mock or then Matt Zoller cites, who's a critic that I love, is completely moved by Russell Crowe's performance, admits that he has vocal deficiencies, but says he just blew him away. Yeah, I really enjoyed um, Seitz's defense of the performance on Twitter because, you know, I kind of liked it too. I mean, I don't know that I loved it, uh, but it didn't take me out of it at all. And I think that his acting chops are there at least and that Crowe does have a real screen presence that works with the character of Javert, who's this um, police officer who is obsessed with the law and uh, has this grudge against uh, Jean Valjean. Um, I think Crow conveys that well. And so even though he can't sing the way that you would want someone in this role to sing, um, he does at least convey the emotion of the part. Let's stop and listen to a, a quick clip of Russell Crowe so people can judge for themselves whether or not he, he's ruining the song. And my thoughts fly apart Can this man be believed Shall his sins be forgiven? Shall his crimes be reprieved? Yeah, I liked Crow, but the uh, non-singer who took me out of the movie was Amanda Seyfried, who plays uh, the older Cosette, who uh, marries the student revolutionary. Uh, falls in love with immediately when he sees her. And part of that's just a hard story to tell. If you don't have uh, fantastic screen chemistry, that's always going to be an implausible storyline. And it is here, I think. I loved- It's a really boring part she has, right? I mean, it's a very generic soprano ingenue kind of part. And actually, I thought in Mamma Mia, Amanda Seyfried was a terrific singer, but I think she's out of her range here. She's out of her vocal range and she's kind of out of her, her talent range. She's, she's perfectly fine at the, you know, the sweet sort of contralto voice, but put her in that soprano range and she just sounds so strained. I really felt for her. Yeah. In fact, I mean, she sounded off pitch to me in some key uh, um, numbers that were shared with oh, other yeah. singers. The love duet. Hear, the high oh. note at the end of the love duet was clearly a screech. I was surprised it wasn't auto-tuned in some way, just out of mercy on the audience. Yeah. I, I, and also, Crow has this great... I like Amanda Seyfried. I've enjoyed her and other things. I just watched Jennifer's Body recently for the first time. She's great in that. Um, she doesn't seem quite right for this role, and she her acting in the part one, she's not given very much to do. But also, she doesn't inhabit that role in the way that I think, say, Crow inhabits Javert, where you forgive, or at least I did, forgive the bad singing um, because he's at least getting the other parts right. Uh, with her, as much as I've liked her before, she just doesn't, you know, leap off the screen, and she also can't sing that part, at least. I've never seen Mamma Mia. I've heard that from other people, though. Um, so it's just – that's also the point of the movie where just – it starts to break down a bit. Um, there are a lot of balls in the air and you're trying to follow their story and you know, get wrapped up in the love triangle with Cosette and Eponine and Marius but also still care about what's going on with Jean Valjean and Javert and it – you know, Hooper just didn't keep all of those things moving the way he. Yeah, could to me, have. it was it really was a jumble by the end, and it fell a lot of times into unintentional risibility, which is not a good place for a musical to go. Especially when when you, you see somebody like Samantha Barks who's singing Eponine, who played I don't know if she played that role, but she's definitely done years of Les Misérables on the London stage. And and even Hugh Jackman, who may not have done Les Mis, but is clearly a veteran of the stage, and you compare their performances to the film actors, it's not even so much that everybody has to reach that same level. It's just more that there's too many different languages being spoken at once, and the movie can't kind of master them and bring them all together. Yeah, in fact, so uh, one of our slight colleagues, Aisha Harris, was telling me in the office today that you know she thinks that uh, we should 
get rid of the stigma on dubbing in musicals, that it was used in West Side Story, it was used in Singing in the Rain. These are among the greatest movie musicals ever made. Well, Singing in the Rain is in some ways about the power of dubbing one's voice, right? Right. It seems, it seems like a dubious distinction given that in most Hollywood films, almost every individual line of dialogue has been looped in later. So the idea of taking singing, the most demanding kind of vocal performance you could ask for, and having to do that live... Seems seems a little bit odd. I mean, in the sense that you're trying to do live theater, I guess that makes sense. But again, it's an, then it's an odd combination with chopping everything into tiny close-up bits. If you're trying to make something feel like you're at a live stage performance of Les Miserables, then you'd want as many long shots, long takes, right, and, and live performances as possible. Well, I, but I do think it's in keeping with um, what seems to me Hooper's general guiding ethos, which is really incredible faithfulness to the musical. Uh, so if you think about those close-ups, right, I mean, I, I, I guess this is sort of typical of his his style generally. Um, but in uh, Les Miserables, I think part of what he's doing is, you know, on a, on a Broadway stage, you don't look at the um, the setting behind the actors very much. You're not getting a whole cityscape. You're having to fill that in with your imagination. And so rather than use, you know, what the movies can give you, which is actually to have a whole cityscape and really fill in some of that background, he zooms in close. It, it's sort of an odd choice, but I think that his decision making makes sense in light of um, what I take to be his attempt to capture a musical on film, capture what people love about Les Miserables and not try to bring um, what the movies can bring to it. I think maybe that ultimately was a mistake, but I suspect that was part of his thinking. But then why not make a more kind of Brechtian choice and make it obviously theatrical, right, and show people moving around to chalk marks on a stage and still creating a world? I mean, I guess that would be something entirely different, but something about constructing these elaborate, historically detailed sets and then barely showing them because you're too busy showing Hugh Jackman's nose hairs just seems like a, a poor directorial choice to me. Yeah, he maybe gets stuck in between a bit. But I do think that um, something almost quasi-Brechtian is almost what he was going after. If you think about um, when Fantine uh, becomes a prostitute, the kind of – it's almost surreal then. It looks like a Tim Burton movie. I I don't think that he's going for realism there. Um, Similarly, the the whole uh, innkeeper sequence, the master of the house, which I – Enjoyed. I thought that Sasha Baron Cohen and Helena Bonham Carter brought some some life to. The I screen. agree. That was a moment that things came alive because it was a little bit body raunchy, comic, and some, just less somber and solemn than the rest of the proceedings. Yeah, and again, it was this kind of over the top, not exactly surrealist, but almost surrealist take on that song. So I don't think that that realism precisely is what Hooper's going for. I think he wants to create a kind of larger than life. Um, since even the the sort of David painting tableaus of of the revolutionary sequence um, are deliberately artificial, I think. I mean, you know, when, when uh, Marius's friend uh, falls out the window and sort of stretches out the the red flag behind him in this sort of impossibly staged way, I don't think you're supposed to think. Oh, it's amazing that it happened that way. I think you're supposed to admire the deliberate and flagrant artistry of that. Sequence. I don't think it quite worked, but I think that's what he's going for. No, I think you're right. And I think the people who are responding to this, who are probably just all finding me a heartless churl, which I probably am, and they should just turn this off and go enjoy the movie. But I, I think that it's probably that combination of sort of semi-plausible historical detail and then just grand romantic artifice that, that they're falling for. Yeah, and it's partly why, you know, when the movie uh, ended, I saw it at a screening and uh, it wasn't a full theater, but there were a decent number of people there. And there were multiple people near me audibly weeping. Um, there were also some people, I think, including, I know, my girlfriend, uh, suppressing 
laughter because she just found the whole thing ridiculous. And uh, as we walked out, she had never seen the music before. And she just said, that's the most inane thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and, I, you know, that, I do think that divide is probably, you know, getting repeated over and over again in movie theaters across the country. David, let me stop you there for just a second so we can get in a word from our sponsor. No problem, Dana. So the Spoiler Special Podcast is happy to be sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment. They offer more than 100,000 titles, which you can play on any device, including whatever you're listening to us on right now. And they have a special offer for spoiler listeners. You can get a 30-day free trial and one free book by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. You can choose your book from any one of their 100,000-plus titles, including everything from classics to current New York Times bestsellers. But we always like to give a recommendation that has something to do with our material for the day. So I did a little audible search and came up with a great possibility for Les Miserables. They have Stendhal's The Red and the Black. The title is Scarlet and Black in this translation. And Stendhal's novel, The Red and the Black, which, if you haven't read it, is one of the great novels of the 19th century, is about a huge sweeping historical period in France, but one that includes this period of the June Rebellion that the uh, Les Miserables is concerned with. So, again, that's The Red and the Black by Stendhal, read by Martin Jarvis on audible.com. Your membership also includes a free subscription to either The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So give it a try and use this URL so they'll know that you're a spoiler listener, audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. All right, David, back to Les Miserables. Something that I wanted to do on Slate, but then I decided it was too mean toward a musical that so many people love, was having some sort of contest where you name the worst rhymed couplet from Les Miserables, because there's some really, really bad dog girl going on in those lyrics. Well, one thing I never really thought about as someone who saw it when I was a kid and always enjoyed it is how bad so many of the lyrics are, which is the first thing she mentioned to me after she said it was inane, was just, you know... The amount of cliché and, and drivel, I mean, I, I dreamed a dream, you know... Uh, Rain will make the flowers grow. I, it, I mean, it really is. And repeating it multiple times, right? right? It's not enough to say it once. Well, and then Hooper, as in everything, just underlines it again and again and again so that Eponine, who sings the song about how rain will make the flowers grow, she only sings when it rains, apparently. I mean, every every song of hers, it's pouring. <laughs> so by the time she actually says, a little, you know, rain will make the flowers grow, it just is so, hits you so hard on the nose that it is hard not to back up a little bit. I think my, my candidate probably for the worst rhymed couplet would have been one that I didn't name in my review because David Edelstein got to it first in his New York Magazine review. But it's the uh, the guy who fires Fantine from her factory job when he's mocking her for being a whore because she has an illegitimate daughter. And he says, you play a virgin in the light but need no urgent in the night. <laughs> Just that internal rhyme, virgin and urgent. Yeah. No, I, I can't really defend, um, you know, the libretto of, of Les Miserables except that if – you know the the overarching story has this grandeur to it that if you get sucked up into it, the kind of um, drumbeat of the music. Drumbeat feel- is a good word for it because it does have a very martial kind of four on the floor sound, right? Yeah, and actually, one thing the movie made me want to do is go back and and see what um, numbers were cut. Uh, and and where the jumps were different on stage. So this is less long and draggy than the stage musical. I, I think it is. Although they added, so they added the song suddenly, which does nothing. Which and song I, is that? It's the song where um, after Jean Valjean, uh, right after he takes Cosette from the Thenardiers, who are the uh, the innkeepers. Right. He's in a uh, coach. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The I've learned how to love. Yes. Song. Which I mean is even more banal than you know the most banal song from the original. It's just, that level of distinction is too fine for me. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. See, whereas for me, that song was like a sore thumb. I mean, it just it didn't have any of what I think are, you know, the, the, the drama and emotion that come from, uh, you know, the, 
the musical's original songs. It just fell totally flat. Did you weep? I have to ask if your girlfriend was laughing. Were you in with the weepers? Or? I, I didn't. I mean, I, I cry very rarely at movies, and I, I didn't cry when I saw it when I was nine. I was never moved to tears, but I was moved. I mean, I did, especially um, the songs are so rousing, some of them. I mean, it's, it's not so much the, the weepiness that gets me. It's the stirring It's the political, stirring, right? yes, the, like the red and black. Um, and in fact, so one of the problems with the movie is that uh, you know, there's obviously no need to clear the stage. Um, I feel like there are breaks that happen. Obviously, uh, the musical has intermission, which the movie does not have. Uh, so, for instance, after the red and black finishes, which for me was a big kind of rousing, soaring number, the very next thing you hear is the beginning of Do You Hear the People Sing? And as much as I enjoy both of those songs, a part of me just wanted a break. I was like, you know, okay, let me catch my breath. You know, and that's another rabble rouser too. Completely, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why. That's why I can't differentiate between those two songs because the whole thing to me was one continuous flow of not interesting sound. But I definitely did feel toward the end like I am adequately roused now. You can get back to the storytelling. Yeah, and you, and you need. Um, you know, you need contrast. You need juxtaposition. You need some, you know, some break from kind of all of the the passion of the students. My memory is that the musical managed that better than the movie did, but you know, I was nine years old, so maybe not. Well, since since this movie is being so touted as one of the big uh, Oscar candidates, I have to ask what what do you think? How do you think things will shake down in awards season for this movie? So Anne Hathaway definitely going to get a nomination at least, right? I think she's going to win. I I. I I think that's a done deal, pretty much. Um, I think Daniel Day-Lewis will probably beat Hugh Jackman. Uh, and I wonder about this movie's chances otherwise. My uh, prediction all along has been that if the movie does big box office, it will clean up at the Oscars also. But I do think it might need the box office because it doesn't have the love from critics. Uh, and I, that was predictable. The musical itself has never been a particularly... Um, respectable uh, piece of music for critics uh, on its own. But it does something different, the movie does, and the musical, but the movie does something different than what any of the other big Oscar contenders are doing. Was it, it just tries to grab your heart and rip it out of you. Lincoln doesn't do that. Zero Dark Thirty doesn't do that. Argo doesn't do that. Um, I suppose Silver Linings Playbook is maybe the one other movie that is more emotional than intellectual. Um, but I'm not sure how much of a contender that is. So I would not be surprised if Les Miserables sort of sustains its its you know fairly strong box office performance so far, and then cleans up at the Oscars too. Interesting, but but probably not for Tom Hooper as director. No. right? I mean, it's, he's had his year already. It was just last year. Yeah. And if there's one thing that you, is not worthy of admiring about this movie to me, it's the direction. Well, and you wonder to what extent the King's Speech recent victory hurts this movie's chances too, because honestly, that was a mistake. The King's Speech shouldn't have won. And he shouldn't have won. And I think um, a fair number of people know that. Um, so that, you know, that may hurt Les Mis' chances. But I think this is a far better and just more interesting movie than The King's Speech. I thought that was just a dull um, exercise. And this, is, for all of its flaws, is at least so grandly what it is. It is certainly grandly what it is. I mean, I could take take that King's Speech comparison on with you, not because I particularly love the King's Speech, but just because I do not remember wanting to flee a theater as intensely as I did during the last third of Les Miserables. But, David, thank you so much for coming in to, to discuss it with me. I'm glad that I got a liker in here because I don't want to just sit around and grouch with another grouch about it. I, I'm, I'm glad to defend it. And I don't want to pretend it has no flaws because it has plenty, but there's a lot to enjoy if you can get into the music. All right. Well, David, please come back and spoil another movie with me very soon. Gladly. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. 
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.